Stacy. Let's offer a word of prayer as we begin today. May the words of my mouth, O Lord, and the thoughts and the impressions, the, the consideration, the acceptance of your word on behalf of all the listeners, prove acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're talking about an important topic today, and if you've ever parented a child or if you've ever been a child, you can probably relate. You know, I, I raised some kids, and uh, I also taught confirmation for years and years and years. And I remember when I first started confirmation teaching, I always tried to be fair. You know, you want to be objective, because you had teachers that were not. You had teachers that, you know... Uh, uh, some kids knew how to play and get on their good side, and, and it didn't seem fair. And so I was going to be objective. I was going to be, you know, absolutely uh, fair. And then after I taught for a while, I thought, well, it isn't fair being fair, really, because um, some kids can work every night. And I know their parents. I know the kid. And, and I know they work really, really hard to learn that memory work. You know, they, it's just like grueling for them. And then they come in, they sit down, and absolute blank. I mean, they put hours into this and wouldn't know it. And, and then I had other kids that could learn it on the way from the car to the classroom and recite it perfectly. You know, talk about not fair. You know, so I, I decided, and I began to conduct parent meetings before we began the year, and I said, you know, don't come to me and said, well, this kid did that and got this grade, and my kid did this and got that grade, because I'm telling you straight up, I'm not going to be fair here. You know, I'm going to do what's best for your child to bring out the very best in your child. And I'm going to treat each child separately because each child has different gifts. Each child needs to be challenged or affirmed in different ways. And uh, I won't say that stopped all the parental complaint, but it helped. It helped. I, ha I have a dad as well who's a friend of mine and, and uh, attends my men's group. Uh, we meet on Wednesday morning. And, and uh, we were talking about this some time ago. It came up in our Bible study. And we are talking about fairness and he said, that's the F word in my house. He says, no one's allowed to say it. You know, he raised boys. And he said, because they're always saying this isn't fair. You know, that's not fair. You did this for him and you did that for them. And he said, you know, we're not going to talk that way in this house. I'm going to do exactly what's best for you. Uh, don't worry about what's best for your brother. So I think it's an important topic. I think uh, a lot of us wrestle with this, you know, in our personal life, how to parent uh, our children or, or if we're a child whether it's fair or not fair. And uh, we translate that then to God. It's just natural that our human earthly experience gets translated into our spiritual relationship. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10 if you want to go there. Uh, I'm going to give you some other important passages. And then we're going to get to your questions on this matter as well uh, in just a little bit. But uh, Acts chapter 10 is where God has to miraculously come to the life of the leaders of the first century church after Jesus ascended into heaven to help them understand that God loves everyone and everyone, Jew or Gentile, is important to him. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But let me just start by saying uh, this issue is as old as civilization as old as the first chapters of Genesis. The first two boys that we we're introduced to, uh, the sons of Adam and Eve, were Cain and Abel. 
And Cain was aggravated because God didn't appear to be fair. And I wonder if he didn't also pick up on that a little bit from his parents as they parented these two boys. Abel might have been a little more easy to parent. Cain might have been a little more difficult to parent. But we know that Cain became aggravated. And even before it came to its ultimate culmination, and Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel, rather than put up with the unfairness anymore, we know that it was an issue even before that. And you say, well, why? Why did God favor Abel? Why did the parents favor Abel if that's what Cain was feeling? Why did he feel that way? And there's no real clue in the Genesis account, but the rest of the Bible does give some insight. In Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the people of faith, it says, by faith, Abel presented a better offering than Cain. I thought that's fascinating when I read that. Because I always wondered, you know, what was going on between these two boys. See, I, I think that they may, it, it wasn't the fact that one was a farmer and the other was a shepherd. It wasn't that, although they're notorious in fighting against each other. And it, I don't believe it was even because one made more offerings than the other made offerings. But I think that key by faith, Abel made a better offering. You know, there are people who make very generous offerings, but don't do it by faith. Do it grudgingly. Do it under compulsion. Do it because their parents require it. Do it because their wife requires it. Do it because their conscience requires it. But it's not freely and cheerfully given. You know, and God's all about motive. And so it appears that the motive of Cain's offering was different than the motive of Abel's offering. And God recognized, even before it came to culmination, God recognized there was a problem here with Cain. And, and in order to help Cain, because he loved Cain as much as he loved Abel, the Bible tells us he actually came to Cain. And this is what he said. He said, uh, why are you so angry? And why are you so sad? If you do right, will your spirit not be lifted? But if you continue down this path, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to destroy you, but you must master it. So God went out of his way, just like every parent does, to say, okay, let's have a talk about what's going on in your life here. You know, you're sad, you're angry. You know, why? And let me give you some advice as to how you could turn this around. And if you don't, man, this is going to go bad for you. And of course, we know that Cain, having free will, uh, chose not to turn it around and eventually led to the destruction of his brother, thinking that's how he would handle his jealousy. So this idea of favoritism is as old as Genesis. And then you go a little further and you get into Isaac and Rebekah who had twin boys named Jacob and Esau. And uh, there was favoritism in that family. You know, Isaac loved Esau. And maybe they had a lot in common. You know, Esau was a hunter. Esau loved the outdoors. And, and maybe Isaac loved that kind of life as well. We know he loved that kind of food. Because uh, Esau would bring back game that he had caught and he'd cook it for his father and he'd make stews and his dad could not wait for that boy to get home. You know, he loved that boy. Jacob, on the other hand, uh, was more of a homebody. Maybe he was more of an intellectual. Maybe he was more of a sensitive guy. And uh, Rebecca, his mother, favored that boy. And we know that that didn't go well, parents. That did not go well. You know, when mom favored one child and father favored another child. And so uh, mom began to uh, manipulate that relationship and it quickly uh, got bad. Later, the Bible says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Wow, God hates somebody? This became an issue uh, in the Bible. 
In fact, other prophets comment on it. In Malachi chapter 1, it's commented on. And it's even commented on in Romans chapter 9 by Paul because people were hung up on that just as we get hung up on that when we read it today. We say, how can that be that God would hate anybody? And uh, Paul actually addresses that head on for his audience when he says uh, in uh, Romans chapter 9, how can we respond to that passage? There is no injustice with God, is there? No, there never will be. For he says through Moses, I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I shall have compassion. So salvation does not depend upon the person nor upon the will of the person. In other words, God extends grace into our life. We're not saved by our behavior. Grace was extended to both of these boys. One accepted it, one rejected it. I think a better translation, understanding the context of that scripture would be, Jacob, God embraced and Esau, God rejected. You know, and I think any parent would do that. No parent is going to embrace a child who is moving down the wrong path. Esau even married women who led his heart away from God, and he was not faithful in his acts of worship. Jacob, on the other hand, married a woman who honored the Lord, and they raised a family that honored the Lord. And and so uh, while it may have seemed unfair, the greatest kind of love sometimes is love that holds one accountable. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You know, an enemy will tell you, ah, it doesn't matter. You know, I love you just the same. You know, that's not a true friend. That's an enemy. So I think that we can even deal with that passage a bit. But all families are the same. In fact, I'm reading a book. I'm going to warn you right up. It's, it's a fairly lengthy book. It's a biography of Daniel Boone. So I'm going to be pulling some illustrations from that just because that's my life right now. But it was interesting that Daniel Boone, uh, born in uh, the western frontier 40 years before 1776, 1734, 40 years before the Revolutionary War. I mean, I, didn't, I had not put him there in my, in my mind uh, for some reason. I didn't realize that he lived uh, as a revolutionary. He was 40 years old when the revolution took place against England. And he was living on the, the western edge, Indians all around them in extreme edges of Pennsylvania. And, and one day when he was about seven or eight, he had gone with his family uh, because the fish were running in the nearby river. And uh, he and Indians and everybody else were saning for these fish and they were smoking them and keeping them for the winter as, as is the custom of, of people in that day. And uh, he was too young to be very helpful. So he had laid down in the sun on a rock and, and he was uh, enjoying the warmth of the sun. He was sleeping and some girls, uh, uh, friends of the family, saw him there and they took a bucket of fish guts and dumped it on him. And uh, he jumped up and punched them both in the nose, gave them a bloody nose. And uh, their mom came to... Uh, came to uh, Daniel's mom and said, what kind of boy punches girls in the nose? And, uh, and uh, Daniel was hiding behind his mother's skirt, and she said, he said, these are not girls, these are rowdies. And he tells the story as an old man. And he said, uh, Sarah, who was a Quaker, by the way, said to that lady, that mother of those girls, if thee hath not brought up thine daughters to be better behaved, it was high time they be taught good manners. They got no more than they deserved. He said, I never forgot the moment when my mom stood with her son rather than her gender. My mom, he said, favored me over all her other 11 children. And in turn, she received my lifelong devotion. It seems like we're always attentive, always have been attentive to favoritism. Let's take a look at our chapter, Acts chapter 10, and then I just want to make uh, four points, and then we'll get to your questions. Uh, In Acts chapter 10, uh, 
Peter is establishing the church and was primarily the leader of the church before Paul uh, assumed that role. Uh, But Peter always remained a a key leader of the first century Christian church. And Peter was a Jew's Jew. And Peter believed that salvation came through the Jews. And indeed it does because the promises come through the Jews. But not only for the Jews. Even in the Old Testament, uh, God's treatment of the Jews as a chosen people was to be a sign to the nations, the Bible says. It was to be a banner to the world. So how he affected the Jews, whether to favor them or whether to challenge them or whether to discipline them, was to be a sign saying, why does their God do this? And to create curiosity in the lives of others. In fact, Romans chapter 2 says that we are the new Jew, circumcised not of flesh but of heart. And when God behaves in our life in certain ways, it's also so that people would say, why does their God do this or do that? Why does he favor them? Why does he discipline them? So as to create curiosity and give us opportunity to talk about our relationship with the true God. And so it was in the Old Testament. But Peter actually believed, and and this was a controversy in the first church, that you first had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. And uh, of course that's not true. You don't have to become uh, Jewish before you accept the Jewish Messiah. You don't have to accept all of their customs before you accept their Savior. And in order to get this through to Peter, uh, God came to him in a miraculous way while he was uh, vacationing in the winter down on the Gulf of Mexico. Actually, he was, uh, he was on the Mediterranean Sea. He was far away from Jerusalem. He was far away from Jewish uh, towns. He was down on the coast. And he was uh, enjoying a break like a lot of people do. He was at Joppa. And he was with another Jewish man. And while they were preparing dinner for him, he was quite hungry. And uh, he went up on the roof to pray. And God gave him this vision of a sheet that came down from heaven. And on that sheet was every kind of unclean, non-Jewish approved food. And a voice came out of heaven saying, kill and eat. And Simon said to that voice, no, I will not. For no unclean food has ever touched my lips. I am a Jew. In verse 15, uh, it happened again, and the voice came a second time and challenged him, kill and eat, Peter. But Peter said, verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean, unholy. And then God said, here's what I'm trying to teach you, Peter. What I have declared holy, let never you declare unholy. Of course, Peter realized he was not talking about food so much. There was an end to the ceremonial laws, by the way, as well. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told that. But what he was talking about is people. If I've declared these people pure, Peter, don't you declare them unpure. Don't you declare them unacceptable to me would be a better way to say it. In fact, let's get to our text, 34 and 35. Because when Peter is pressed by another non-Jewish person, actually a Roman, to come to his house and to teach him about his God... Peter, before this vision, would have said, no way, I don't go into Gentiles' homes. But now he had a different point of view, and it must have shocked everybody, because he said in verse 34, when he opened his mouth, he said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one who shows partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. God, in fact, does not play favorites. So I just want to give you that as the basis for our discussion. Now let me make four points. I'm going to give you four different scriptures. You have some white space on the back of Spread the Word that you can make some notes if you would like uh, on these four points. Or you can also text questions into the text message that's on the TV. Although I said over there the other day I could never see the TV, so I never saw that. It was hard for me to bug Ryan with the text question, but uh, that will also be on the screen after a while. 
point number one, like a parent, God loves us all equally. Like a parent, God loves us all equally. I love my boys the same. I had two different boys, very, very different. And they are reflections of my personality, only different aspects of my personality. You know, my son Josh is an outdoorsman. He loves to hunt. He loves to fish. Uh, I exposed both of them that early in my life. It's something I grew up loving and doing. He has taken it to uh, ten times the degree that I dabbled in it. And, and now he drags me along. And Jacob, on the other hand, is a lover of books, reads all the time. Uh, he's quick in his mind. He's a great writer and a speaker. And, and so he has a different side of me that I also enjoy. They're quite different, but they're also equally loved. And when I think about God's attitude about this, here's what he said through his son Jesus during his Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, that's common standard talk. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be true sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you want to be and have the values of God in heaven, then you love everybody equally. For does he not cause his son to rise on the evil and the good? Does he not send rain on their fields as well as yours? And if you love those who only love you, what reward is there in that? Don't even tax collectors do that? I mean, don't even the most vile of sinners don't that? Don't gang members do that? You know, love those who love them and do what they do? He says, and if you greet uh, people who greet you, how are you different than any other? Gentiles do that. You should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he says, you should uh, love everybody equally well. So like a parent, God loves us equally. Point number two, like any good parent... God sometimes gives more attention to one than the other. You know, you've done that. You know, when uh, one child, a daughter or a son, needed your you know, uh, significant attention, uh, and, and sometimes because they were excelling in something, so you went and you really affirmed them, doesn't mean you didn't leave the other, you didn't love the other kids you left at home that night. It was, it was this person's night. Or more often, if a child's in trouble, you give them a lot of attention. You know, I remember one time when we were out throwing stones at a neighbor's shed, uh, my mom came out and there were a bunch of neighbor kids. I was only one among, you know, probably six or seven out there doing this. And uh, uh, she chased the others home, but she gave me more attention than she gave them. You know, (laughs) did she not care about them? Well, she didn't care about them in the same way. I needed attention, you know, at that time. And I didn't get the same attention that the other children in our family got. I got special attention. And, and in fact, in Matthew chapter 18, it describes that uh, when um, Jesus tells this parable. What do you think? A man has a hundred sheep. One of them goes astray. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, I tell you, he rejoices more over it than the 99 who had ever, never gone astray. Does he love the one more than the 99? No. He loves them. They are not as at great a risk as the one that is gone astray. And so he gives that one more attention. But to the 99, it might say, look what he did to us, man. He left us out here in the wilderness. Nobody looking out for us. Nobody caring for us. Since you're not at risk. You guys got each other. But this one over here, he may die. And so I think about that with the church today. You know, sometimes we're accused of caring too much for people who aren't sitting in our pews. You should care more about the people who pay your bills. 
I think the people who pay our bills, you people, you know, we love you, we care for you, we teach you, you have all kinds of opportunities, you have fellowship with each other, you know the Word of God, you love the Word of God, you have so much. But there are people who are at greater risk than you. Just because we make the loss the focus of our work as Jesus did, does not mean that we don't love those who are saved. It just means that we're going to have the priorities that he had. You know, the church is not the mission. It is established by God to accomplish the mission. The mission is lost people. All right, point number three. Like every child on earth, we think God plays favorites. You know, it just seems that way. You know, why does God bless them and not me? We think God plays favorites. Uh, my favorite story in this regard, I'm going to mention John chapter 21, verses 20 to 22, if you're keeping notes, is when Peter uh, is on the beach, and, well, actually, Jesus was walking on the beach. It was after his resurrection, but before his ascension, and he told them to go to Galilee and wait for him. And so they went to Galilee, and Jesus didn't show up, didn't show up, didn't show up, and Peter said, I'm going fishing. You know, Peter was impetuous. He couldn't wait well. Uh, do you know anybody like that? You know, and he just needed to make things happen all the time. And the rest said, well, we'll go with you. And so, you know, they hadn't been fishermen for a while, but they still knew how to do it. So they were out fishing. And then through the fog, they saw somebody walking on the beach. They said, well, who could that be? Why would anybody be out here walking on the beach? And then they said, it looks like it's Jesus. And, and so Peter stripped off his outer garment, dove in the water, couldn't even wait for the boat to get there, and swam to shore to be with Jesus. And they had this reunion. Jesus had already been cooking fish. Nobody even dared ask him where he got them. And, and, and then he went for a walk on the beach with Peter. And remember, Peter had denied him three times. And, and so three times Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, oh, Peter, feed my sheep. He says, Peter, do you really love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, then tend my lambs. And then the third time he said, Peter, seriously, do you love me more than these? And it says Peter was grieved in his heart because the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? He says, um, Peter, I love you. Tend my sheep. And then he told him, he told Peter, he said, there's, gonna day, there's a day going to come when people are going to tie you up in a rope and they're going to take you where you do not want to go and they're going to do to you things that you do not want them to do. And it says he said this to signify what kind of death Peter was going to die. And that was a very intense moment, you can imagine. And Peter was feeling uh, the tension. And, and he noticed that John was trailing behind them like a little brother, you know, 20 paces behind, kind of, you know, trying to see what's going on. And, and John so loved Jesus, and he felt loved by Jesus. He was feeling on the outs. And Peter probably knew he was there, you know, glancing over his shoulder. And, and so he turns and he says, to distract attention from himself, he says, what about him? You know, what's going to happen to him? You know, just like any child would do, although he's a grown man. And, and, and Jesus said, uh, if I wish for him to live until I come again, what is that to you? You do what I ask. In other words, don't worry about him. This is about you and me. And it says it went on to, uh, people began to believe that John was going to live forever because of what he said. Although the Bible then says, but he did not say he would live forever. He just says it doesn't matter what happens to him. Peter, you do what I ask. So every child, I think, feels that God plays favorites. It's just our nature to believe that. Point number four, and then we'll get to your questions. Although God has no favorites, we often think that he should. Don't we? 
I mean, we say, what about us? Come on, Lord. We have suffered so much. The disciples said that often. We have suffered so much. What's going to happen to us? This is an issue even in the Old Testament. And I'm going to refer only to Psalm 37. I'm not going to spend any time with it. I've gone too long. But Psalm 37 is an incredible psalm because this was an attitude even during the time of David. People said, why does it not pay to be a Christian? It seems like non-believers, don't you agree? Non-believers at work seem to have it better than you. They don't have all the responsibilities that you have. They seem to do just as well as you do. Why doesn't God favor me more? You know, because I'm one of his children. David wrote that whole psalm to deal with that question. And it's incredible. He says, you know, their day is coming. You know, their judgment will come. They will not have the things that you have. Like grass that blooms for a while and then dies and is thrown in the furnace. So their end is coming. But God will do for you what God needs to do for you. Your righteousness will shine like the new day sun. And then at the end he says, you know, the righteous man has a posterity, but consider the man who does not believe in God. When he is gone, all is gone with him. But the righteous depend upon the Lord, so he is a refuge for them. So he says there is a difference. God does bless you. Let me leave with this, uh, this illustration. This was brought up in one of our worship meetings. And uh, uh, I, I, it wasn't my idea, but I thought, wow, this really makes sense to me. You know, if I'm in the middle... And I look to people who, in my mind, have more than I do. I actually don't know their life, but it looks to me like they have more than I do. They might have more problems, but I only see their blessing. When I look to my right and see people who have more blessing than me, I have envy if I look to them and compare myself to them. If I look to people who maybe have less gifts, less ability, less position, less honor than me, I look at them and I feel superior. I feel proud. You know, so looking to your right and to your left is never a good thing. But if you look up to the Lord, the Bible says, who gives uh, to all generously, with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow, who gives to each of us according to our need, then I have contentment. And then I will always have gratitude in my life. So it's never good to look out. It's always best to look up. May God bless you in this walk. Well, let's turn it uh, to your questions and see what you might have to say about uh, things that uh, deal with this question. Will God treat a person who has been faithful all their life differently than someone who came to Christ late in life? No, I, I think that God will do exactly what that person needs to be done. A person who has been faithful all their life, somebody asked last night this question, you know, because sometimes the church looks like it has favorites. And, and I said, you know, at this point in my life, I think God asks more of me. You know, even Stacy read that passage, to whom much is given, much is required. I don't think that's just money. I think that's faith. I think that's courage. I think that's leadership. I think that's whatever it is. And, and, and so the greatest honor that God could give me now is, is not to uh, enable me, not to treat me as some kind of entitled person. You know, that's going on in America today. I don't want to be treated like I have some special entitlement because I have a relationship with God, you know, I, I want him to ask significant things of me. In fact, I believe that when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say, come follow me and I'll make your life so great. Man, I have resources, I have miracle ability, and you will be taken care of. What did he say? Follow me, take up your cross. You know, take up your cross doesn't sound like I'm going to get special favor. It sounds like I'm going to get a special challenge. But see, I think the greatest need of a person is to be significant. It's not to have more. It's not to get more attention. 
It's to be significant. So uh, faithful all my life, sure, I have more responsibility. I don't begrudge God in that. I'm, I'm thankful that he considers me worthy of that. Someone who comes to Christ late in life, even on their deathbed, am I jealous of them because I had to work harder? No. Welcome to the show, man. I'm glad you're here. Never too late. Glad you're saved. Glad you've come to your senses and have embraced what God wants for you. Next question. What role does the devil play in misfortune in believers and non-believers? See, I think this is curious. You know, uh, I, I, know I know a guy uh, who recently uh, uh, left uh, bad behavior in his life and, and has begun to uh, do the right thing in his life. And uh, I, I had a meeting with him the other night, and he, and he said, wow, he says, since I made that decision, my life is great. And I said, so did the, is the devil doing this to you or is God doing this to you? You know, making it great. Because when it no longer happens that way, are you going to say, wow, see, it doesn't pay to be faithful. See, I wouldn't, I wouldn't base my favor with God on my present circumstance. You know, I'm doing good, so good's going to happen to me. You know, even the prophets suffered who followed the Lord. So, you know, I look at God's love for me in light of the cross, not on how things are going in my life. So I think there's danger in that. And I don't always know. I, th- I think the devil sometimes encourages you. I think of it as a tug of war. You know, sometimes that tug of war is won by giving slack, by giving the other team, you know, uh, some slack so they fall down the other direction. It's not always pulling against you. Sometimes it's favoring you. In the movie The Advocate, you saw that pretty well. I love that movie because, you know, that, that young lawyer was blessed and was blessed and by blessed. And where did it lead him? Far from God and far from his values. and just nearly destroyed him. So I think that Satan often blesses doesn't just give you heartache. Uh, next question. At the beginning of a sporting event, both teams pray, about, but only one team wins. Is God playing favorites? Yeah, good question. Uh, uh, the Germans during World War I had on their buckles, God mit uns, you know, God with us, you know. Who is God with? You know, I, I don't think that God plays favorites. Uh, I think he uses life circumstance uh, and, uh, to help individuals. Uh, I, I would just pray always, you know, and, and I've often been asked back in the day when my kids were in sports to have the prayer at center court or to pray with the team or whatever. And, you know, God, let everybody, you know, compete in a way that brings out the best in them. Let everybody have courage. Let everybody be well. And uh, let's enjoy this. I love it at the seminary. If you've ever been out of the seminary to a basketball game, uh, it says, uh, um, gracious in victory, humble in defeat, or something like that. And I, it's right there on the wall, and I love that. You know, it reminds you that, you know, be careful here. Whether you win or whether you lose, there's an opportunity to be a witness to God. And that's true in your life as well. Well, they're saying I'm out of time, out of questions. And uh, I know this isn't a real controversial issue, but it's a good thing for us to remember, you know, as, uh, as we deal with circumstance in our life. Because we are tempted, we are so human in our nature that we are tempted to equate God's favor by either things going well or things going badly. Uh, Sometimes his favor is best demonstrated by discipline. God disciplines those he loves. He chastens every son that he receives. So sometimes that's how God's favor is shown in your life, even as you show it in the life of your children. Let's pray. Lord, bless us to this end that that we might be more understanding of um, the fact that your love uh, never fails. You never give up, never give up on us. And, and keep us uh, strong in this relationship, either in seasons of abundance or, or seasons of uh, struggle.
and keep us mindful that uh, you will love us in every season. And sometimes it's not even about us. Uh, sometimes we search and search our life to try to understand what's going on like Job did and say there's nothing that, that merits this kind of behavior from God. When in fact, you might just be working in our life for the benefit of our wife, for the benefit of our child, for the benefit of our parents, for the benefit of our colleague at work. And it may have nothing to do with us. It may be that you're using us as a witness to somebody else. So help us, Lord, not to doubt based on the cross. We pray in Christ. Amen.